morning. It's wonderful for me to be with you. Uh, our church knows of you. Luis has come and preached for us. Um, you don't know us yet, so it's wonderful for me to be able to come and to preach for you. Um, Luis, I met, I don't know, about a year ago at a pastor's gathering, and Luis was like, oh, you're a church planner, and he wanted to get to know me, and he reached out and asked if he could buy me lunch, and, and since then has been a huge encouragement to me, so I'm so thankful for Luis, uh, and through LASBA, he has sought for us to be able to partner further. I'm so thankful for your pastor. Um, pastors need friends, too, and sometimes it's good for pastors to have friends with other pastors. Uh, to be able to talk about our unique burdens and to be able to be an encouragement to each other. Luis has been a big encouragement to me. When, Lu when Luis came and preached for us, it was his third sermon that day. Um, this is my first of only two because we only have one service. So thank you for Luis for being willing to do that. Um, we are uh, a new church plant in Fullerton, Emmanuel Church. Um, my wife and I were overseas for six years in Dubai. My wife is Chinese-American. She grew up here in Orange County. And we had a heart for the nations that took us overseas. And when the Lord brought us back, we realized that that heart for the nations could easily be uh, applied here in Southern California as there are literally people from all over the world that live here. And it's our heart to be able to reach uh, the nations that are here in Southern California. And we're planted right next to Cal State Fullerton. And so it's our heart to be able to reach students and hopefully international students as well in the days ahead. You can pray for that. Um, we are going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Um, and as we begin, I want to read uh, for context, beginning in chapter 12 and verse 31. But I'm just going to read the whole chapter, though we will be focusing in on just the middle section of chapter 13 verses four to seven. I'll also be reading from the HCSV, which is now called the CSB, as that's the translation that we use, uh, the Christian Standard Bible. But either way, this is God's word. But desire the greater gifts, and I will show you an even better way. Chapter 13, verse one. If I speak human or angelic tongues, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so that I can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give away all my possessions, and if I give over my body in order to boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy, is not boastful, <clears throat> is not arrogant, is not rude, is not self-seeking, is not irritable, and does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy and unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. But as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. 
I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put aside childish things. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully as I am fully known. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. And then chapter 14 and verse 1, pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, and especially that you may prophesy. As we open God's word together, let me begin our time together in prayer. Let's pray together. Father, we give you praise that you are a speaking God and that you have revealed yourself to us through your word, that you have revealed yourself to us through Christ, the word made flesh. Lord, we pray that as we open your word this morning together, that you would speak to us and that you would help us to see you more clearly and to see more clearly how we can image you in the way that we love others too. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Um, No, I did not choose this passage because it's Valentine's Day this week. I didn't even think about that until Luis brought it up. I simply chose this passage because we are preaching through 1 Corinthians at at our church, and when I thought of one standalone sermon to preach, I thought this is an easy standalone sermon to preach about love. Um, And as, as there may be other applications of this passage, as we're going to see the context of these descriptions of love is not in marriage in terms of romantic love, as wonderful as that is, as a gift from God, it's not even the gift of love for parents to children or children to parents, as beautiful as that is. The context for the love that is described here is, believe it or not, Christian love. The love that is to be found in the church among Christians, one for another. Uh, This passage, though, is famous. Some have said it may be now the most famous passage in the Bible because of how often it is read at weddings. And not only at weddings, apparently it was read before millions of hearers at the funeral of Princess Diana. It is a famous passage and one that many Christians and non-Christians may even be able to quote or at least quote part of because it is beautiful. And yet, as we will see, these descriptions are not what we might think uh, descriptions that would be heartwarming as much as they may warm our hearts. But in their original context, as the Apostle Paul was um, Speaking to the church at Corinth, a divided church, these descriptions of love were not sentimental or sappy or syrupy. They were actually a rebuke. The Apostle Paul is dealing with a divided church and a church with many problems. One of the reasons we chose to look at 1 Corinthians in our early days as a church is we thought, well, the church at Corinth got into so many problems in their early days. Let's look at all the mistakes they made, see what the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit taught them, and maybe we can not hit every pothole that they did on the road to being established as a a new church. 
But this divided church was divided over many things. They were divided over leadership. They were even divided over how to use gifts. And they were using gifts that the Holy Spirit had given in order to promote themselves. And so they were vying for position and power in the church and using the gifts that the Spirit had given to do that. And so the Apostle Paul has to address the theme of gifts in chapter 12 and 13 and 14. And what you'll notice is that uh, after the Apostle Paul describes the gifts in chapter 12, he encourages them in the last verse of chapter 12 to eagerly desire spiritual gifts, but he tells them to desire the greater gifts. And what we'll see is uh, those greater gifts in chapter 14, if you keep reading this afternoon, is that the greater gifts are those that can be understood, that can be intelligibly spoken and heard, so that the whole church might be edified and built up. And so the Apostle Paul is having to reprioritize the gifts in their minds as they're excited about what seem to be the most miraculous and supernatural of the gifts, particularly the gifts of um, tongues and the gifts of prophecy. But before the Apostle Paul gives them the right order of which are the greater gifts, it looks like what he does is he pauses and he steps back and he realizes, if I just tell them which ones are greater, this divided and competitive people may very quickly just change course and start desiring prophecy more than tongues and continue to be competitive and continue to be um, rude and self-seeking. So what the Apostle Paul does is he steps back. He actually zooms out and he realizes that what they need to understand is that there is a gift greater than any other spiritual gift, and that is the gift of love. And so what he does in chapter 13 is he puts a pause on his argument from chapter 12, and for a whole chapter, he explains to them the importance of love. And before getting back into gifts in chapter 14, he spends a whole chapter just thinking together about love. And what he does is he zooms out to help them understand in terms of their priorities, regardless of how great spiritual gifts are in terms of their ability to build up the body. If you have great gifts without love, those things amount to nothing. That's what he begins saying in the first three verses of chapter 13. He actually puts together math equations. I'm not very good with math. That's why I became a pastor. I can just read and um, focus on literature and writing. I don't have to think about math and science, but I can identify an equation when I see it, and these three verses are equations. Do you see that? What he says in verse 1 is the gift of tongues or to be able to speak in other languages. So tongues minus love equals noise. You see that? If you take love away from your ability to speak in tongues, that just becomes noise, a, a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. A second equation in verse 2, if you have gifts of speech, the gift of prophecy, and you're able to understand all mysteries and knowledge, able to teach, able to proclaim the truth, if you have gifts of speaking minus love, what does it equal? Zero. Nothing. You see then a third equation in verse 3. Great sacrifice, great service minus love equals? Nothing. Zero. These are some math equations that I can understand. Hopefully you can too. 
He's here explaining the essential nature of love when it comes to the church and when it comes to exercising the gifts that God has given us in the church. Then he, now in our section, which we're going to focus on, verses 4 to 7, he now describes love. This is love expressed. So the first section is love is essential. The second section here, love is expressed. It's described. And the last section, he's going to explain that love is eternal. Those are the three sections of chapter 13. We're just going to focus in on four to seven now. That's just for context. But that is the first point of this sermon is love's context. And you'll see here that love's context helps us to understand our use of spiritual gifts. But it also helps us to understand that the application of this teaching, though there may be some secondary application for the other loves in our lives, what he has in mind here is Christian love, love as it's expressed uh, in our lives together in the church. Apostle Paul then spends time describing love here from verses four to seven. And many of us uh, may know this. Many of us may even have it memorized. Paul here is using this description of love, not in a vacuum. And in fact, he's not defining it. You notice that. He's describing it. He's expressing what it's like. He's describing its characteristics. But he actually does more than that. In his descriptions of love, he personifies love. You see that? He explains the things that love is and the things that love does. Apostle Paul doesn't just tell us what we ought to do or what we should do. He explains with love personified the things that love would drive us to do. Um, I love watching my children play together. There are moments when they play together sweetly. I love those. That's when the camera comes out, take pictures. I wish it happened more. I'm often having to referee the battles that go on. But when they play together, often our, our, our little kids love to personify things. They take inanimate objects and they pretend like they're alive. You can imagine this with like the stories of Winnie the Pooh. You have a, a, a little boy being told stories of his um, stuffed animals coming to life and then having these adventures. Well, here, the Apostle Paul personifies love. It's similar to what the writer of Proverbs does in Proverbs 31 in personifying wisdom. Um, Sorry, in Proverbs uh, 9, not 31. Proverbs 9. Wisdom is described as a woman and personified as a woman who invites the foolish and the simple to come and to learn from her. Here, the Apostle Paul personifies love. Notice as he uses these descriptions, these are not in a vacuum, as I said, and they would not have been for the original hearers sentimental or heartwarming. They would have been visceral and gut-punching because he's using these descriptions to describe everything that they aren't doing. He's actually using these descriptions to tell them the things that they are not and should be. When the original hearers were Hearing this, these descriptions would have been toe-stepping, not heartwarming. In fact, I'm sure many people would have been offended by the things that he wrote, and yet understood in its context 
What he is doing and zooming out is he's actually telling this church that love will solve all of the problems that they have in the, in the church. And I think that means that this description is the center of the book as a whole. I hope that becomes clear as we begin walking through these descriptions. Because each thing you can connect to the problems that they were having throughout the rest of the book. And each of these descriptions is telling them how love is the answer to all of those problems. So as we begin looking through these descriptions, we're just going to walk through them quickly before we do really quickly in terms of um, helping us listen Two things. How do we listen to this? One, I want to encourage us to listen to this um, in order to understand what God is like. We should listen to this in order to understand what God is like. <clears throat> When you look at a description of love, we must look to our loving God who has displayed for us what love is. <clears throat> What's amazing about love is it is one of the few things that God describes that he is. Now, there are many attributes that he has, but love is one of the few things that he describes as being his very essence and being. God is love, the apostle John tells us. So as we read these descriptions, let's be thinking about what God is like, because in these descriptions, we sh should be able to look at each one and think about how God loves and understand him better. The second thing that we should do is read this and examine ourselves. James and James 1 describes God's word as a mirror. And when we think of these descriptions, we need to be able to put the mirror of God's word before our own lives and evaluate how we're doing. If we are Christians, if we call ourselves Christians, we should be growing and being able to reflect our loving God. And so we need to make sure that we read these descriptions and listen even to this sermon, not with other people in mind, <clears throat> as we're so prone to do, not quick to look at all of the people in our lives who are failing these tests and these descriptions, but to listen and to read looking in the mirror. We must seek to know ourselves as God's word exposes it. We should not use this to tell other people that they have no love, as one writer puts it. Some of the most loving people that he says he's ever known have been wrongly accused of a lack of love, but often the people who say that others have no love are themselves the ones most lacking. It is easy to see the speck of lovelessness in another's eye, but miss the log of self-centeredness, hypocrisy, and anger in our own eye. So therefore, use this passage to speak to ourselves. So as we begin, let's look at these descriptions. These describe Christian love. First one that he lists there is that love is patient and love is kind. He begins with two positives. Then he's going to have eight negatives, all the things that it isn't. Then the last negative is contrasted with a positive and then four more positives. So that makes, if my math is correct, seven positives and eight negatives. So he actually spends more time explaining what it isn't and what it doesn't do than he does positively saying what it is and what it does do. This is helpful for us. The first two that he lists are love is patient and love is kind. These are actually also listed by the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 5 as fruits of the Spirit. 
First one is that love is patient. What does it mean that love is patient? Well, it means we're not concerned with our own time or our own priorities over the needs of others. Love is not impatient, we could say. The Apostle Paul has been teaching them just two chapters earlier in chapter 11 about their um, lack of love at their fellowship meals as a church. This church at Corinth was a Roman city and Rome had a 10-day week. And so that meant that on most Sundays, they would meet after work on a work day. It was not convenient for them to meet in terms of having a day off. And so it looks like they were regularly having a fellowship meal together in the evening and then having their services. Well, he there describes that the rich people who could afford to, who had more time on their hands, were coming early and stuffing themselves with food. They were becoming gluttonously full. Some of them were even getting drunk before the service started because of how full they were eating and drinking. And they were not patiently waiting for the poorer day laborers or the even slaves who would come after their work was done. They would eat all of the food before these people arrived who actually needed that food to be shared with them. They were impatient. So the Apostle Paul tells them at the end of chapter 11, when you meet together, he says, wait for one another. Don't rush into eating, only concerned with yourselves, but be patient and wait for one another. And don't make things about your timetable and agenda, but be concerned for others. It may also be, mean that patience here describes our need to be long-suffering, though he addresses that later as well. The second thing that he describes is that love is kind. Love is kind. It is not harsh. It is not severe. It is warm. It even is concerned with the well-being of others, and kindness causes the kind person to draw near to others. Uh, one of my pastor friends from Dubai that served on staff with me has now planted a church in India. And my good brother Benoit tells the story of uh, seeing the gospel at work in a place where there is a literal caste system. People are born into different castes and based on which caste you're a part of, you're not supposed to interact with people below your caste level. And he told the story of being with a, a, a young man who had come to faith who was not even in the caste system. He was one of the untouchables. There, there was no caste level for him. He was the lowest of the low. And this meant that no one in India, a part of any caste system, was allowed to interact, touch, be near such a person. And this young man who had come to faith is introduced to another Christian in a fellowship setting, and he knows, as he's introduced to him, by the last name that this man is a Brahmin, comes from the, 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 the top caste. And as soon as he hears his last name, he backs up and thinks, I should not interact or even be near such a person. And that Christian brother, though he was Brahmin by birth, said no and drew near to this other man and said, no, you're my brother, and gave him a hug and expressed Christian love. You see, friends, love is kind. 
It imitates our kind God who does not stay at a distance but draws near and brings love and kindness even to those undeserving. Uh, the Apostle Paul has been teaching on the need for kindness um, throughout the book of 1 Corinthians, but there's a, a big emphasis on this in chapters 8 to 10 as he deals with the issue of Christian liberty. The, the Christians were excited to express the freedoms that they had as Christians, and they were willing even to embrace these liberties, even if it caused other people harm, and even if it led young Christians into sin and stumbled them. The Apostle Paul has to spend three chapters, chapter 8 to 10, encouraging these Christians to use their liberty in ways that would imitate Christ and even imitate the Apostle Paul, who was willing to give up his rights and his freedoms if it meant that it was good for others. The Apostle Paul even says there that he'd be willing to become a vegetarian if by eating meat he would cause someone to sin. He's willing to no longer eat meat ever again the rest of his life and to give up that freedom if it meant that it would benefit others. It is kindness that characterizes Christians. Well, now he moves into these uh, eight negatives. He begins with love does not envy. Love does not envy. It is not jealous. Love is able to rejoice in the good that comes to others, even if it doesn't benefit us. We rejoice when others receive good gifts from God. Now, the Apostle Paul has had to talk in chapter 12 about these Christians who had what appeared to be greater gifts and other Christians that appeared to have lesser gifts. And he actually speaks to those that have a spiritual inferiority complex in chapter 12 and tells them that they should not envy the gifts that other people have. He actually encourages these people who feel inferior in terms of their gifting, and he tells them that every gift is essential, indispensable, and every part of the body is indispensable for the body accomplishing God's purposes. And he does this to encourage those that are insecure to not be envious, but to be content with what the Lord's given them and to use their gifts knowing that every part of the body is necessary and indispensable to the whole church accomplishing its purposes. So we see here, love does not envy. It also does not boast. It does not brag. It, it does not puff itself up with words. Now, the Apostle Paul uses this um, same language back in chapter 3 with leaders that were boasting. He also uses it in chapter 8 to talk about these proud people who were using their freedoms, that they were boastful in their knowledge as well as here in chapter 12 and 14 in terms of people that were boasting with their gifts. Apostle Paul here has something to say to those that have a spiritual superiority complex who look down their nose at others and encourages them. Love does not boast. The Apostle Paul in chapter 12 tells those that have greater gifts, that as great as any individual gift is and as great as any individual gifted Christian is, they're only one part of the body. And just like your physical body, the body of Christ is made up of many different parts, and each one is necessary. And so, even someone with great gifts, maybe the greatest of gifting, needs to realize that they are only one part of the whole. 
and to think of yourself as if you're great is to think of yourself like a, it's a little graphic, a severed body part. That's how he describes it in chapter 12. Imagine uh, um, an ear or a nose just hanging out by itself. That doesn't work. It needs to realize that it's just one interdependent part of the whole body. Well, connected with not boast is then not proud. Love is not proud. It is not puffed up. It is not inflated. That's the idea. It's not full of itself. Pride is perhaps the great sin, as C.S. Lewis calls it, a sin that is behind so many other sins, and yet love is not in any way proud. He uses descriptions of pride back in chapter 4 as they are fighting over leadership. He also tells them in chapter 5 that in not dealing with sin in the church, they are proud. In chapter 5, he says, you have unrepentant sinners who are living in great and scandalous sin, and you're not dealing with it. And he says, you're proud for you to accept sin at God's expense is to be proud and to affirm something that God calls sin is pride. It is not humble to be hesitant where God has been clear, as one writer puts it. We need to be confident and clear where God is clear and humble where God is not clear. But we should not be prideful in refusing to be clear where God has clearly revealed his will. And this is what the Corinthians were doing and refusing to deal with sin. So Paul tells them in chapter 5 that they need to remove this unrepentant sinner from among them. And that it's actually loving to do this. To allow this person to realize the state that they're in. For Christians are not people who never sin, but Christians are repenting sinners. Non-Christians are unrepentant sinners. And for a Christian to continue to hold on to sin means you're acting like a non-Christian. And the church must make that statement through church discipline. Well, the next, verse 5, the next description is, love is not rude. It is not dishonorable or unseemly or unbecoming or improper or indecent. The same word is used back in chapter 7 to talk about singles and the way that they were treating each other. And it looks like it means not mistreating one another sexually. Love is not improper. But love is honorable and treats brothers and sisters in Christ in the church with honor, treats other people with honor, and is in no way improper or unseemly or indecent. This is clear in terms of the passage of chapter 5, in terms of the scandalous sin that was going on there, but Paul continues to talk about this in chapter 6 with uh, new Christians continuing to be drawn back into sexual sin. It's clear here that what he has in mind is there's no place for this. Not even a hint of sexual immorality should be named among us as Christians. The next one is love is not self-seeking. Love does not seek its own. Love seeks the good of others rather than our own good at others' expense. As I mentioned earlier, the Apostle Paul spent much time on this in chapter 10, 
as Paul held out his own life as an example of not demanding his rights or demanding what he would prefer himself, but living a life of sacrificing even good things that he could have if it meant that he would be able to live his life with a greater benefit for others. Uh, Jonathan Edwards describes what happened at the fall as he explained this verse in his wonderful treatise, Charity and Its Fruits. He says in a whole sermon just on this one line, he preached separate sermons on each description. You can thank me for not doing that. And his title was, The Spirit of Charity or Love is the Opposite of a Selfish Spirit. And he describes what happened at the fall that human beings, mankind, went from being able to love God and to love others. And he says that our soul in our original creation was expanded to be able to love God and to love others. And he said what happened at the fall is we shrank. And we shrank into the prison of our own selves, only concerned now with ourself. Not even able to be concerned with others, let alone God. He says that sin, like a powerful astringent, contracted man's soul to the very small dimensions of selfishness. And God was forsaken and fellow creatures were forsaken and mankind retired within himself and became totally governed by narrow and selfish principles and feelings. And he describes what can happen when Christ enters into our lives. It is through the cross of Christ that he is able to restore for us an excellent enlargement and extensiveness and liberality to the soul to again be able to possess divine love, a love for God and a love for others, something like our original creation design. Love is the opposite of a selfish spirit. You see here next, love is also not irritable. It is not easily angered. Love remembers God's love for us and learns to be patient. And even after being wrong, learns to forgive. Um, I grew up rural, so I'm, I'm a hick. I'm a redneck originally. Um, and I grew up hunting and fishing. I grew up with guns. When I told my wife this, she was very concerned, having grown up in Orange County, thinking... Guns were something very different. We only had rifles or shotguns. We never had pistols. They were tools for hunting. But my dad and I would sometimes adjust the triggers of our guns to make them more sensitive so that you could just squeeze them off and you'd have to adjust them. And we would call it, you want to make it as much as you can a hair trigger, meaning you don't have to squeeze it hard for it to go off. You'd have to put a safety on there to make sure it doesn't go off when you're not expecting but we would adjust it as hunters to be what we called a hair trigger. The idea being you could pull a hair and with, with a hair pull on that trigger and it would be able to go off. Well, love does not have a hair trigger. It's not easily provoked. So often we are. This was the one most convicting for me as I was reading through this. It seems I have this particularly as a father. It's not my fault. It's my kid's. 
I'm just kidding. It was all there inside of me. Love is not irritable. It doesn't have a hair trigger. It doesn't easily go off and explode. It has a long fuse, if you want to think of it that way, like dynamite with a very long fuse. It takes a long time for that anger to come out. Now, we as Christians can have a righteous anger. Jesus got angry when his father's house was being mistreated, and he even threw over the money changers' tables says he made a whip with cords and was stalking around the temple, refusing to let these people back in. I would love to have been nearby seeing this happen. But it was zeal for his father's house that gave him such righteous anger. Now we, James tells us in chapter one, need to be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. Why? Because the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. We can have a righteous anger. We're commanded to be angry and sin not. But to get up on that righteous anger is like getting on the edge of a blade. It's so easy to go over onto the other side and begin to sin wrongly. We need to, as Romans 12 and 13 put it so clearly, We need to entrust God with vengeance. You see also here the last, sorry, next to last negative, it does not keep record of wrongs. Love is not calculating. It is not tabulating. It is not brooding. It is not resentful. How convicting is this? We can be good at nursing hurts, planning our revenge and how to get people back. It, it, Probably, um, in Paul's mind, what he's thinking about is chapter 6, verses 1 and following, where members of the church at Corinth were taking each other to court. They were literally keeping records of wrongs and dragging one another, fellow church members, into the courts in order to sue them for money. And the Apostle Paul is so sad and even embarrassed that they would take a fellow Christian before a secular court in order to get some money back. But love keeps no record of wrongs. He says it would be better for you back in chapter six to simply take that wrong rather than to embarrass the whole Christian community before the secular world by this display. Lastly, love takes no joy in unrighteousness. Love does not delight in sin, does not delight in the things that God sent his son to die for, but rather love rejoices in the truth, rejoices in the things that are true. Both the truth as it's proclaimed and understood, but also the truth as it's lived out with lives in light of that truth. As the Apostle Paul puts it in Philippians 4, anything that is good and lovely, of good report, These are the things that we should dwell on. These are the things that we should rejoice in. He ends with four. They seem to be a chiasm. The first one and the last one seem to go together. Love bears all things. And then the last one, love endures all things. Love is able to take on the burdens of others, but even be patient with the sins of others that are committed against us. This may be an extension of that first one. Love is patient. We are, as God's people, in need of the help of others. 
And it may be that you think of yourselves as being independent, as so many of us do as Americans. And yet we are to be in the church dependent people who are willing to put our burdens out there for others to help to bear, but also to be willing to bear the burdens of others. Whether it's helping them persevere through a difficult trial or persevere through strong temptation, we are to be those that are willing to, as the loving people of God, bear all things. And when others do us harm, be willing to endure all things as Christ did. In the middle then are these two that also go together. Love believes all things and hopes all things. Now it may be that what Paul has in mind with these two things is uh, chapter 15, which is coming, where Paul has to address their questioning of the resurrection, some basic truths about the gospel. It may be that what Paul means here is that love, love for God, believes everything that he reveals, or it may be that this is a reference to our relationships with others. If it has to do with our relationship with God, then we believe everything that he reveals and don't question any of it. That's what Satan will seek to do to cause us to question God's word. It also hopes for all things that God has promised us. But if this, as all of the others, seem to have a mindset for how we relate to other people, then what this refers to is believing the best of others and hoping that people can change and grow and actually that the promises of God can be at work in other believers rather than relegating people to how we perceive them now. Calvin puts this so well. Love never ceases to hope for God's best in every life and every situation. And he says, this doesn't mean that love is naive or gullible, but love would rather be deceived by its gentleness of heart than to unnecessarily injure a brother by suspicion. Love believes all things and hopes all things. Now, we tend to think that love never fails or love never ends is the final description, but it's not. It's the heading of his last section of chapter 13, where he then describes love's eternality. That's the heading for that last section. I want to take a couple moments here to apply this for us. How do we apply this passage? How do we apply this to our lives? Well, let's do it with some secondary application first, and then we'll do some primary application. Let's do some secondary application. What I mean by this is application that is legitimate, but not uh, the immediate point of the text. Let's do some secondary application. We cannot read a passage like this and not think about how it might apply in our other relationships. So while the main context here is Christian love in the church, I want to begin by asking about your loves outside of the church before we think about it inside the church. So, married couples, husbands and wives, you should read this list and think about your marriage. And you should read this list and not think about your spouse in your marriage, but think about yourself in your marriage. Do these descriptions describe you and the way that you love your spouse? And I'm sure there is not a married couple here, unless you were just married yesterday, that has not felt the weight of the consequences of treating people 
in opposite to these descriptions and treating your spouse the opposite of how this is described. It would be good for you, I'm going to give you some homework on your way home, or if you're embarrassed in front of your kids, you can go into your room and close the door afterwards. I want to give you some homework to talk with your spouse about this list and about your marriage and use it as an inventory, a description of how you should be loving each other because this is a description of what love is like and what God is like and what we should be like as we image God. And where you have failed, and I know you have, let me encourage you, brothers and sisters, to humble yourself and ask forgiveness in specific ways for the ways that you've sinned against your spouse. All right, parents. We need to think about this as parents too. The the relationship of parents to kids and kids to parents is a vital one. And you have parents, mothers and fathers, a wonderful opportunity to image what your heavenly father is like and the way that you love your children. And so often we will fail. Let me encourage you parents to spend some time evaluating this list and the way that you love your children. And where you have failed, this may be harder than the first bit of homework. Here's the second bit. Sit with your kids and repent before them and ask them for their forgiveness in specific ways. We can think as parents that it's our job to model perfection for our kids. It's not. You are not perfect. I am not perfect. It is our job as fellow human beings, though we are parents with authority over our kids, it is our job as fellow creatures to model repentance for our kids so that they can learn what it's like to be a repentant sinner from the closest people in their lives. And you want them to look up to you and see an example of what repentance looks like, as well as hopefully a generally faithful life. But if you pretend like you don't sin, your kids will smell it. And they will resent you for it. And it will drive them far from you rather than keeping them close. You may think you'll lose a bit of authority by doing this, but... In fact, you won't. Your kids will respect you more for being honest with God and with them. We encourage you parents to use this and learning to model repentance for your kids. It's amazing when I do this. As hard as it is, I have to swallow really hard before doing it. How quick my children are to, to forgive me and even make excuses for me like, ah, oh, it was our fault. We deserved being yelled at like that. No, you didn't. It's good for us to model repentance for our kids. Let me encourage you parents to do it. Now, in terms of primary application, we have to think about the context in which this is described, which is our relationships in the church. So friends, a a third but more primary application is, friends, how are you doing with this list in your relationships in the church? You have here a description of the way you need to be relating with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And what this means is there's a lot of expectations for us as Christians in the way that we relate to each other in the church. I teach in our membership classes that one of the descriptions of 
the church, one of its images in the New Testament is that the church is a family. Ephesians 2 says that the church is the household of God. And when you're a part of a family, there are a lot of benefits to being a part of a family, but there's also responsibilities too. And this list helps us to understand something of the responsibilities that we have in the family of God. And those responsibilities include treating each other in ways that image our loving God. So friends, how are you doing loving brothers and sisters in Christ? How are you doing loving the ones that are difficult to love? You know, loving those people allows us to look more like Christ. Even when it's hardest, we get to be a little more like Christ. Now, it may be that you read this list and the problem that you have is not in failing as you are involved in the church, but by with your withdrawal from the church, not even knowing where to start thinking about this because you have lived your life independently from the church rather than in a committed loving way with your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. It may be that what this passage says to you is that you need to lean into your spiritual family and make the church not an additional add-on to your life, but a vital part of your spiritual walk. It is, in, uh, it is part of the nature of the church itself to be a family and to be a true spiritual family with depths of relationships and depths of involvement in which we genuinely love each other. If you're not sure what that might look like, I'm sure your pastor, Luis, would love to talk with you more about how you can lean into this particular church. Let me encourage you to do it. Well, as we think about this list, I can't simply give you this list and leave you feeling guilty. There is a third way to, to read this list that I didn't tell you about at the beginning. We need to read it and think about God. We need to read it and we need to think about ourselves in terms of allowing the mirror to expose ourselves. But we also need to read this list in light of Christ. The Bible tells us, how do we know what God is like? How do we see God displayed most clearly? Yes, this list shows us God, but how do we know God most clearly? Well, through Jesus. The writer to the Hebrews writes in Hebrews 1, long ago God spoke to us, to our ancestors by the prophets at different times and in different ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. The son, verse three, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature. How do we know what God is like? Well, we look to Jesus. And how do we know what love is like? Well, we look to Jesus. The third and final way that we actually read this list is we Think about each of these characteristics in light of Christ, the one who came to show God's love to us. Let's read now through the list, thinking about Christ. Love is patient. And Christ was patient with people. That meant spending long meals with people into the night, even with sinners and people that Many of us would not want to spend time with, and yet he was patient with people, with each one. He was kind. His kindness caused him to leave heaven's glory in order to draw near. And he didn't just draw near for a moment, but he literally entered the womb of his 
birth mother Mary and became a man. He drew near to show the kindness that God has for sinners. He never envied. He never boasted. He was never proud. He was never rude. He never took advantage of anyone. He was not self-seeking. He did not seek his own. But he came to serve. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He was not irritable. He was not easily angered. And even when he was on the cross being mistreated, being killed, though he was innocent, he did not call down angels. Though he could have and would have been right to, he was patient under suffering and not irritable or easily angered. And the one who is the judge of all, Jesus, who will one day come to judge the living of the dead, the one who does keep the record of every wrongs came to earth because of those wrongs, your wrongs and mine. And he set a new record, a record of perfection through his perfect life. And then he took the record of our sins and it was nailed to him and to the cross so that that sin, our sin, the full record of it, every sin was born on the cross and paid for so that that perfect record of his perfect life could be applied to us and given to us in our place. He did not take joy in unrighteousness, but he came to pay for it all. He rejoiced in the truth, and he was willing to bear our sins and bear our burdens, to endure our misunderstanding of him, our mistreatment of him. And he did this by believing in everything that his father told him, though tempted in the desert. And he looked with hope to the future, which helped him to endure, knowing that the promises that his father had made him would come true if he was patient under suffering. What's amazing about Jesus is that in Jesus, God doesn't just give us a list of to-dos. He shows us a person who has done it all. I love that John in 1 John gives them this command to love one another. And he tells them that on the one hand in chapter 2, it's an old command You've had this command from the book of Leviticus. Love God. Love your neighbor. Deuteronomy 6, Leviticus 19. You have these old commands, and yet he says it's a new command in him and in you. What does John mean by this? I think John is quoting his own gospel in John 13, where Jesus, knowing that he had all authority and that he was about to leave the world loved his own to the end, he got down on his hands and knees and washed his disciples' feet, and then he told his disciples, since I have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. He says, I tell you, a servant is not greater than his master, and a messenger is not greater than the one who sent him. In other words, we have an opportunity to imitate Jesus in obeying this list. Because what we've been given is not just some commands, but we have a person now who has saved us and who has showed us what this should look like. 
And we now get this new command, not just love, but love like Jesus. Brothers and sisters in Christ, if you're a Christian, you have a wonderful opportunity to love, and it should not be simply a burden on your back, but it should be a wonderful opportunity for you to image the Savior that has saved you and to show others a little bit of the love that you've been shown by your loving Savior, Jesus. Let me encourage you to seek to imitate him. Read through the Gospels again and think about this list and all of the ways Christ has loved you, and then seek to go and do the same as a demonstration of his work in your life. Finally, if you're here and you're not a Christian, this is not a list for you to try to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and try to save yourself by being a little more loving. You can't do that, and you can't read that list this way. You can never do it. You can never measure up. And even if you could do some of these things some of the time, it won't deal with all of those other sins that you've already committed and will commit. No, your only hope to experience the love of God and to in some way be able to image him is by coming to him with your sin, turning from your sin and even from your attempts to try to earn salvation apart from God and ask him to take your sin from you, to give you the salvation that he offers you. I'm sure Pastor Luis or any of the elders here would love to talk with you more about that. If you're here and you're not a Christian, today can be for you a day in which you experience true love, the love that God Love himself has for all kinds of sinners, including you, including me. Well, friends, we should conclude. I pray, first bilingual, Pico Rivera, that you will be able to read this list and not think about Valentine's Day and not merely think about your marriages and your parenting but be able to see Christ in this list and then be able to know something more of what it looks like to imitate Christ in the way that you love each other. I pray that the Lord would use this for his glory and for your good. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are indeed a loving God. Thank you that you have not kept that love from us, but actually brought that love to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you that we know love through Christ. Lord, we pray that you would help us as Christians to learn how to love from Christ and that in this way you would make this church a compelling community in which others would delight to know more about this loving God through the dim reflections that they see in this loving church. Lord, we live in a divided world, one in need of love. Lord, we pray you would be at work showing love and displaying love right here. Lord, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.